0: You think you have a strong sex drive, but does your sex drive prompt you to break off some of your own appendages and then leave them in the female as a plug so that other men cannot impregnate that spider? No. I don't think so, anyway.
1: I'm not going to answer that question, I'm not my (laughs) lawyer here.
0: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I am not Rachel Feltman, but I am Sarah Chodosh.
1: I'm Stan Horacek.
0: I'm Anna Brooks. So our lovely host, Rachel, is on vacation this week, and we are so happy that she's enjoying herself on a beautiful beach somewhere. But we are here recording the podcast in her stead. Here on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we spin some little science yarns about a weird Wikipedia rabbit hole we went down or a strange thing we read on Reddit, or something we came across in our reporting. And then we share them with you, and at the end we vote on them. And we have a small battle royale to determine who is the winner, and then you also get to vote on it on Twitter and Facebook, because we're very democratic that way. Anna, give us your teas.
2: Okay, so I'm going to keep my uh, tease short and sweet. I will be discussing animals that dispose of their sex organs after, and sometimes during, sex. Wow.
1: That seems inconsiderate.
2: Well, you don't know what sex I mean, I don't need a penis. It's mostly
0: penises, <laughs> I penises. I
2: don't need a penis,
0: so why does anyone else? <laughs> okay, Stan, you're up next.
1: Mine is decorate your home with artwork made of human flesh.
0: Hmm. Wow, okay, so we're just off to a really gross start here. Yeah.
1: Is yours um, less gross, Sarah?
0: Mine is <laughs> so much less gross. <laughs> mine is about um, a 17th century philosopher's riddle and the experiment that answered that riddle in 2011. Ooh. It's spooky, but it's not gross. Wow. I already know <laughs> facts about animal penises, so I'm I'm more curious about the uh, putting skin on my wall.
1: Yeah, you can. Of course you are. Because it's fascinating. Who doesn't want at least part of their home covered in human skin?
0: Yeah, that's a question I ask myself daily. Yeah. yeah.
1: So in 2016, uh, a father and son team of funeral directors started a company called Save My Ink Forever. And what this company does is when someone dies who has a tattoo, um, you can make arrangements with this company and then within 48 to 72 hours of their death, you can get in touch with the funeral director and the company will provide directions for them to harvest the tattoo off of the dead person. And then the company will take it and preserve it they will sort of stretch it out and flatten it out and make it look as nice as a s- <laughs> splotch of human skin possibly can in a frame,
0: like a canvas, like an animal skin canvas, yeah. almost literally. And yeah. then
1: within three months, they will send you. They have uh, it
0: takes three months.
1: Well, I think, or they, is there a backlog? I think they give you a three month <laughs> time. Like I'm sure there's like a bunch of Manila folders full of flapping skin uh, that. They're uh, <laughs> Oh, Man, God. I gotta. I just picture a guy behind a desk with like an <laughs> inbox with a big stack of skin on it, and he's just putting oh. them in the outbox. Does it you know. get
2: crispy,
0: or does it stay? Does it get crispy? <laughs>
1: such a good question. So when you get the final product, it's it's already under glass. Um, it's okay. pressed into a mat,
0: so you don't have to touch your loved ones. Dead no,
1: and it's skin. and it's under UV resistant glass. They treat it like literally like it's fine art. And. <laughs> They're very cagey about what the process is because these guys are like, well, yeah. <laughs> the the father is like a he was a surgeon and a funeral director and a lawyer, and the son was a funeral director as well. So like they had the exact right skill set to sort of navigate the really complicated both paperwork and you know logistics of screwing around with a dead body mm. uh, to sort of get this done. The final outcome is sort of beautiful. They, they do this really nice treatment where the skin is sort of bleached almost. It looks lighter than usual, and mm. the, the artwork is actually preserved in a really nice way. like, And they have these really elaborate frame options. When you send in your tattoo, they pick a nice frame for you. So some of them are wow. gold and, and adorned and stuff like that. And the final presentation looks really nice. If you were just scrolling past it and someone posted a picture of one, you would think it might be like a sketch on a piece of paper that's torn off.
0: Um, cool. So, so it doesn't really cool. look viscerally like skin anymore.
1: It, it doesn't. And, you know, when I started looking into this, I was wondering, like, how do people preserve skin? Even after I learned about it, I'm still not sure which one they're using because there's – the two techniques are called wet and dry oh preservation. Oh, okay. okay.
2: And, Is it like when you go to the barber shop and that blue fluid that keeps the comb? So that's, like- that's a lot less what –
1: what wet is. Uh, And I had a friend, I had a friend who is a tattoo artist and some tattoo artists when they are learning, they practice on dead pigs because dead (laughs) pig skin is very similar Mm. to human skin. So he had a piece of pig skin that he had done a tattoo that he really liked and then he had cut it out and they had saved it in formaldehyde. So that's what the wet preservation is like. So that saves it, but it's also not very practical in terms of fine art. The dry process is when you take it and you scrape all the yucky stuff off the back and then you stretch it out with pins and then you let it dry. But the I see. The way that usually works is that generally the edges get very curly. So they've figured oh. out like a practical way to to do this. And while I was researching this, I was like, this sounds honestly kinda cool. Like my tattoos are all bad. <laughs> so like <and laughs> Show I, us. Show you're us. You're <laughs> welcome to look at. Like I have One of my tattoos is from, like, a reality TV show that I was on. Oh, So What What reality reality
2: show? Was it Jersey Shore? No, it
1: was called Inked. It was a long time ago.
2: Oh, I remember Inked. Uh, I used to
1: watch that show. The short version of that story is that no one's preserving my tattoos.
0: (laughs) You're not going to do the service? No. Because they're not good enough?
1: Well, it costs about $1,000. Wow. Per tattoo? The sizing really sort of depends. Like, if you have a small tattoo, if you have, like, a a dad tattoo like on your shoulder, (laughs) like that's going to cost you about a thousand bucks. And then if you add an extra one, it's about 750 bucks. Um, But, like, if you have a really big one, it it obviously costs a lot more. But my Mm -hmm. tattoos are just not particularly good. But I I got into – I know a lot of people who are really into tattoos. Mm -hmm. So I started researching this, and I was talking to a friend a long time ago um, who wrote several books about tattooing. And he told me about a guy uh, in Japan named Fukushi Masaichi, and I apologize profusely if I murdered that name. Um, But he was was a Japanese doctor who was born in the late 1800s, and he sort of practiced. And he was fascinated by tattoos. He was like a pathology doctor. And he got interested in tattoos when he found that the ink, when you went over a lesion caused by syphilis, it would kill the lesions. So he got really Mm. fascinated with it. So over the course of his (laughs) work—
0: Why—sorry. (laughs) Why— Why were people tattooing over syphilitic lesions?
1: I, I don't know. Okay. I, I couldn't tell. You. He was he was specifically studied syphilis. Uh, that was like his I see. His specialty. So I guess it's just a thing that was the weirdest thing he learned that week. It was like, yeah. hey, tattoos fixed it. Japanese bodysuit tattoo is, is sort of a an art form, an amazing art form. Mm. And that's that's what you should Google for. Don't Google for any of the other things that I'm talking about today. <laughs> just look at a lot of really beautiful Japanese tattoos. Unless you, you want to preserve
0: tattoos. your tattoo, in which yeah. case do Google.
1: He collected Skins. So he worked with people who were in the hospital, and they had these beautiful tattoos, and he wanted to preserve them. So he would help pay for them to finish all their tattoos, and in exchange for that, he would get to keep their pelts once they died. <laughs> so he had this huge collection of full of skins that were literally, and you know, it sounds crazy, but it's true. And there are a bunch of other museums that have examples of skin samples of tattoos and you know this guy had so they reported something like 2,000 pelts and partial pelts and 3,000 photographs of
0: the word pelt pelt <laughs> is so upsetting <laughs> Is that what they're really called? I always thought a pelt was like a like a fur.
1: It, it is, I mean, it is, it's It's essentially like the, like you're skinning a person. So they, yeah, they call ew. them, they could.
0: I would have called it a hide. I've seen uh, them actually, referred yeah. to as hides
1: too. Okay. Helped um, so was
0: more upsetting. Congratulations <laughs> on that word
1: choice. Good. I helped you <laughs> yeah. uh, be more upset. So, <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, a lot of his collection was destroyed in World War II. Um, hmm. But some of it still persists through all these museums you can go and look at these <laughs> skins <laughs> that are tattoos. And I, I think it's a pretty fascinating idea that someone would ever want my skin. Um, the, the one modern <laughs> example I could find is that model Kate Moss. You know Kate Moss? Yeah, is I know Kate the Moss. most pho- One of the most photographed women in the world. She has a tattoo. It's literally a prison-style tattoo done with a scalpel and pen ink on her back by a very famous artist named Lucian and Freud. And it's two very small... Sparrows, which is a really common tattoo subject. And an art expert sort of said, you know, if she were willing to part with that part of her skin, it would be an original Freud and it would be worth a million British pounds that she could sell it.
0: Wow, imagine, because <laughs> her whole body is already worth so much money uh, yeah. as a model. Yeah. Imagine then, just a small section of your skin being worth that much.
1: Yeah, and I so even the last so the last example I'll give you is that there's a guy in Australia named uh, Jeff Ousting. I think that's how you say his name. He's a retired school teacher, and um, he has a full body suit of tattoos and some rather impressive pierced nipples, by the way. Just what very, do you mean well,
2: impressive? They just, <laughs> impressive. Everything
1: you'd imagine about impressive pierced nipples. Oh boy! And uh, <sighs> he has made a deal with the National Museum of Australia to have his skin go on display after he dies because his tattoos are done by a famous artist named X. Day Medici, um, who is apparently not doing tattoos anymore. <laughs> he retired because he's a famous artist.
0: Medici like the very famous European family.
1: I have no idea. That uh, would be really interesting. Fine ar- Because they
0: funded like an enormous portion
1: of all European art. I mean, it's, it's entirely possible. Wow. I mean, That's outside of I photography, I don't know a lot about. Fine art, but if more of it was made of human skin,
0: you would be more <laughs>
1: interested. Be more interested in it, yeah. Oh, that's crazy.
0: I mean, it is interesting because the, you know, tattoos. There's a tons of cultures historically that have have given all kinds of tattoos. Like a lot of the Pacific Islands have very distinctive, specific patterns of tattooing and traditions around, you know, when you get it and what exactly you get. I mean, I do. I started out thinking this is gross, and there is still something a little bit gross about. A person and displaying their skin forever. But I mean, if you're investing sort of that much, like it's clearly meaningful, especially, you know, if you've tattooed your entire body. I, I do see why you would want to have that live on.
1: One of the tricky things about it is that they only work with good tattoos. I don't know if you guys know anything about like the, the, the mechanics of tattooing, but it's possible for something called blowout. When you do tattoo, and someone that means that someone pushed too hard uh, or they like <laughs> pushed at the wrong angle while they Ooh. were doing it, and the ink will seep lower than it should in the skin oh. and it sort of clouds. Ooh. And Interesting. Like that, that's it happens with, you know, sometimes it happens in big tattoos, it happens with good tattooists too. It's like certain parts of the body, like your elbow. Um, you know any joint that moves a lot, it tends to blow out. But it doesn't really preserve very well. So like mm-hmm. they're they're very clear on the website that you have to have good <laughs> tattoos.
0: It's not it has to be good. Like they have to judge it artistically to be good. As in technically, it has to be a good tattoo.
1: Yeah, I'm an artist, right? I write and I'm a photographer. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of pressure in like, okay, I want to make this thing for someone who's good. I'm taking their portrait. I want to be good. Like I imagine putting myself in the situation, where I'm like, I'm. F- Farting around with your dead mom's corpse, and I get one chance at it, and that's a lot of pressure to yeah. make it good. Well, it
0: seems like a lot of pressure to be a tattoo artist as well, because, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, we make fun. There's a lot of really terrible tattoos and probably a lot of ta- terrible tattoo artists, but there's a lot of phenomenal ones and a lot of people who just have genuinely beautiful, meaningful art just yeah. on their bodies. Yeah,
1: you should. And now this is why if you're thinking about getting that Spring Break 2018 yeah. tattoo, you shouldn't because <laughs> 2018. When your kids want to save your tattoos, they're not going to want to save that like picture of Drake <laughs> that you got on your leg.
2: Wow. Anna, is, you have tattoos. Would you save your tattoos? I'm like, Stan, I have some real bad tattoos. She
1: has three Drake tattoos. I have three <laughs> That's right got that just idea for Drake
0: tattoos. I have heard from friends that like you have a lot of tattoos. That the strategy should not be to get super meaningful tattoos. The strategy is like, because whatever you think is meaningful at like, you know, 16, you're probably going to think is cringy at 26. Oh, yeah. So like go for something that you just like think is funny.
1: My wife has my name tattooed on her wow. and it's big. It's like worryingly big.
0: <laughs> Wait, how big?
1: <laughs> like too big. Like, like, like if she were here now and you saw it, I'd I'd be like, yeah, sorry. Where is it? It's on her back. It's wow. gonna make a great wall hanging one day. Wow, Stan!
0: Is it like is it like across her shoulders, like a jersey? Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would be, be incredible. Though. I should make it a competition. I'll get hers even bigger.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. Because you guys yeah. can't see Stan, but he's a big guy. So like, <laughs> just like him, just like his shoulders are like twice as wide as mine. And so like, that would be amazing. You would
1: just look like. It's gonna be a very expensive preservation process.
0: Well, this was wild. Um, I think we're going to take a, a break so that we can go figure out what my first tattoo is going to be, and yeah. then we'll, we'll be right back.
1: Hey, pals. Looking for super cool popular
0: science merch? We've got you covered at popsi.threadless.com. Pick up T-shirts, notebooks, and mugs with iconic vintage covers and illustrations ripped from the magazine. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite shows like Last Week in Tech and The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That's popsi.threadless.com. P-O-P-S-C-I dot Threadless dot com. And we are back. Go buy some Threadless shirts. They're great and super soft. I'm going to go next to spread the grossness a little more diffusely throughout this podcast. I'm going to talk about some neuroscience. Our story begins with William Molineux. I don't speak any French, and actually, he wasn't French. It just looks French. He was an (laughs) Irish philosopher um, who lived in the 17th century, uh, and he proposed a thought experiment that went something like this. I'm paraphrasing. um, Actually, I'm taking Oliver Sacks's paraphrasing. Uh, Suppose a man born blind and now adult, and taught by his touch to distinguish between a cube and a sphere, be made to see. Could he now, by his sight, before he touched them, distinguish and tell which was the globe? Which the cube, to translate into modern English, (laughs) if someone who is born blind, you know, knows the difference by touch between a cube and a sphere, and then that person were magically cured of their blindness, would they, without being able to touch the shapes, be able to tell which one is the the cube and which one is the sphere? Ah. This was a fairly famous thought experiment for a long time. It was they were he was friends. William Molyneux was friends with John Locke, who was a considerably more famous philosopher than he was. And in an essay concerning human understanding, Locke brings up this thought experiment, and says he tries to answer it basically with l- logic uh, by saying he thinks that the answer is no, that a, someone who's blind won't have any idea what a cube and what a sphere look like in a visual space. This was basically, you know, it was a thought experiment. It was impossible to test because...
1: I disagree that this is untestable because I test this every single time I look for a iPhone charger in my backpack (laughs) and I'm digging around in there.
0: And you don't know what it feels like? Yeah, I'm
1: like, which one is this? Is it a USB? I don't know and then I pull out a big wad of cables.
0: That's the back. That's the opposite of this oh. thought experiment, though, isn't it? <laughs> no. <Don't those laughs> yours is about a seeing well, person who I'm, doesn't know what things feel like by oh, intuiting what they I feel like. I got a like. new one. Yeah, So this th- is the Horacek thought experiment. Yes, the Horacek thought experiment. But we've already experiment. answered it.
1: <laughs> well, well done. It was a good one. Wow, round.
0: yeah, well, that was a great <laughs> five <laughs> seconds of mystery. Um, this one was impossible to test. Like, you could, you know, it's a thought experiment, so you're supposed to think about it. But, um... Generally, back then and for most of human history, we did not cure blindness. People just went blind, often prematurely. I was sort of looking back to see like how many cases of restored sight there might have been historically. So there was a paper I found from 1971 that basically estimated there were like max 15 cases where people had had their sight somehow restored, um, like generally surgically.
1: From mm-hmm. total blindness?
0: So I think... I didn't look into all 15 case reports, but I think generally it was people who had like cataracts or something like that. Like something where maybe they weren't necessarily born blind, but they went blind at a very early age or they weren't born blind. They were born like just with very severely depleted vision Um, And then you were able to somehow restore that vision surgically. But Mm -hmm. for also for most of history, we were you know our surgical techniques weren't very good. So if you did restore vision, it wasn't exactly great vision because we've been able to repair cataracts for some time, just not very well. So the reason I think that this thought experiment is really interesting um, is because we're very like those of us born with normal vision are very visual. Like we think of the world. Very, like at a basic level as a visual space uh, that we move around. But if you are born without vision, you just fundamentally don't approach the world that way. And I think it's very hard to put yourself into the headspace of someone who has just never been able to see the world.
1: That's one of those things you do when you're a little kid. You're like, how do you describe the color blue to a person who can't see the color blue and has never seen it before? Yeah. Like you just can't do it.
0: And I think, it, like, it's just, like, I talked to a researcher once who does research with blind subjects who said that there's even, a, like, significant problems in studying blind people because all of the tests that we have to sort of understand how brains work, so many of them rely on vision. Like, a lot of them ask blind people to, like, point to something. Like, in order to indicate a direction, you point. But, like, a lot of blind people don't point because that's that's not at all a useful thing if you're blind. It's, so it's pointless. Just, oh, boy. Sorry. <laughs> oh, boy. That was beautiful. <laughs> it's so hard to imagine. Um, and there's, for a long time, the only way that we could really understand, like, how vision works, you know, I mean, babies, obviously, babies have to develop vision. So you spend, like, the first year of your life as a baby developing normal vision but it's very hard to interview a baby about what they what they see and what they understand and do they have a sense of like how far away things are so you do it in animals and unfortunately the a lot of the experiments were done on kittens oh um, god so the so there's this idea in neuroscience of critical periods i don't know if you guys have heard of critical periods but the mm-hmm. idea is like that there are sort of some things that you that when you're a child especially when you're a baby before you know probably age 2 you sort of learn how to learn things. You acquire all these skills and you acquire just basic abilities like being able to see, being able to talk. Um, So the most famous one that a lot of people learn about in like intro psych classes is a critical period for language because the very few examples we have, like Jeannie is the famous one who was the little girl who was basically kept by herself in a room by her parents and never spoken to. Oh, Um, It was awful. I mean, she was abused and an enormous number of ways, but when she was finally rescued, she couldn't speak and she couldn't ever learn to speak. Like no one was ever able to give her any facility with language. And there've been a couple other like isolated cases like that that led people to basically hypothesize that there's some period in which you learn how to speak. And if you miss the window, that's it. You can't ever really learn how to speak a language fluently. And there's an idea that that same principle is true for vision. If you don't if you can't see for the first, you know, couple years of your life, and then you had your vision restored, you just wouldn't ever be able to understand the world that way. You would mm. never gain normal vision. So there were experiments like sewing one eye shut oh. on some kittens to see if they could develop normal sight afterwards. Um They were bad. They were bad experiments, and you can't interview a cat either, so not super helpful. So a lot of what we know about restoring sight has come relatively recently when we have been able to restore vision reasonably well in people who had cataracts. There's one group in particular that runs a a project called Project Prakash, which I'm sure is not the way you say it. Um, Mm. It's a Sanskrit word, so really definitely not saying it correctly. (laughs) Um, But it it restores sight in a lot of like teenagers and young kids in India because there's a widespread cataract problem and it's a reversible problem. So this project has given many, many kids the ability to see for the first time at like age 15. And because of that ability in 2011, this Project Prakash did an experiment to see whether Molyneux's problem was actually, like, whether the answer was yes or no. So the answer is, John Locke was right. If you give a blind person sight and you give them a sphere and a cube and they know what a sphere and a cube feel like, they cannot differentiate them on sight alone. Hmm. Because that's, that's fundamentally not how you approach the world. But it's also that people who have their sight restored That late in life, or even after a few years, like, you know, kids who are, like, eight, there's no, like, aha moment. The most famous case was described by Oliver Sacks and a guy named Virgil, who I'm I'm guessing is not really named Virgil. Um, (laughs) But when he had his sight restored, uh, what he described was that he, like, opened his eyes and he felt like what he was seeing was a blur. And he didn't sort of understand what he was seeing until... His surgeon said his name, and then he realized that what he was looking at was his surgeon's face because Ugh. he just didn't understand what his what a face was. Sure, yeah, and, and that's
1: yeah. an interesting thing. Like that goes, that's tied so much into Oliver Sacks. Like yes. where you're just like, we we don't see eyes and nose and mouth, we see a face, you know, and like that's the mm-hmm. stuff you learn because. If you consider all the stimuli that your brain's getting all at once when you're just looking into a random room, it's absurd that our brains can make any (laughs) sense of it at all. Yeah, it's incredible. And if you have no practice just grouping those things together, and just all of a sudden there's like a big face. And
2: like movement too, not even just an object, but like moving mouth
0: and stuff. Okay, so what's really interesting is that, I mean, I don't know about a moving mouth, but moving (laughs) objects make much more sense two people who have just had their sight restored than still images, because movement, I think, my impression is that movement, you know, if a ball is moving, it's clear what which bits the ball are because they're all moving together. Because a lot of the problem seems to come from the fact that, like, you can see colors. Like, if I'm looking at you, Anna, like, you're wearing a black shirt and you're wearing kind of, like, a teal dress, and I can understand, like, how all those parts fit together, but to a person who has just had their sight restored, they look like entirely different objects. So, like, if you imagine a cow with, like, the classic, like, black and white splotches, you can put that together as one cow. But someone looking at a picture of a cow who's just had their sight restored, look at it, and they see every splotch as an individual item.
1: And this is how, there are neurological disorders too, right? There's, like, a famous, isn't, isn't there, like, a famous case where a guy couldn't tell his, Wife's face from like a set of car keys or something. There's a very famous Oliver the, Sacks,
0: the man who mistook his wife for a hat.
1: For a hat, ah. that's right. It was a hat.
0: Yeah, <laughs> because just all of the pieces are like these individual separate things. Like this is I. There's a New Yorker I. I think it was also in one of Oliver Sacks' books, but he wrote it also as a New Yorker essay about this guy Virgil, and he talks about this guy Virgil had a dog and a cat, and the dog and the cat just both happen to be black and white animals, and he can't tell the dog and the cat apart unless he touches them, because to him they are just like, there's a paw, and then there's like a tail, and then a head, and ears, and like, but those are all distinct and so his wife talks about she would come into a room and she would just find him, like, touching parts of the cat <laughs> and just, like, looking really, really carefully at the cat, just, like, trying to understand how they all fit into one animal. That's why I- cats hate us? <laughs> Let go of my stare, body We part. just stare at them. He would get confused by his own shadow because his shadow seemed like a different object. He was terrible going up and down stairs because, like, if you know, if you look at stairs, like it's it basically looked like a flat image to him. Like he couldn't project that into three dimensions. Like you understand that they go up. He was just like, this doesn't look like any three
1: dimensional. Object. Once you try to take apart how depth perception works and the very complicated parallax angle math that your brain has to do on the fly all the time, it's absurd that we can do it at all.
2: It's wild. Yeah.
1: My wife, she had like a, a thing where she couldn't use one of her eyes and lost a lot of her depth perception uh, for a while. And it's funny because she'll, she had what they call depth memory for a while. So she could remember how far away, like familiar Mm -hmm. things she could get. But if she put her in a new place and she only had one eye, she wouldn't have any real memory of how far apart things were. So it was really hard for her to navigate because she didn't have that actual, the brain doing the calculations. So you know she could be like, I have a general idea of how big that desk is and how big it's supposed to be so I can figure out sort of how far away I am from it. But if Hmm. you put her in a room full of random shapes... And what, If you put anybody in a room full of random shapes and gave them only one eye, like they'd probably bang into everything because your brain just couldn't figure out the distance anymore.
0: We should explain maybe a little more explicitly that the way you know how far away things are, the way you see in three dimensions is that you have two separate eyes and the light reaches your eyes at slightly different angles and slightly different times, and your brain does just amazing computations to put them into a single image almost instantaneously and tell you how far away everything is from you
1: yeah that's how 3d works that's amazing show each eye a slightly different picture and you can trick your brain into thinking that it's three dimensions
0: that's how that's how the 3d movies work yep all right we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're not going to be talking about 3d movies we're going to talk about some detachable genitalia so stay tuned for that It's really easy to get confused by all of the tech news flying around the internet. On Last Week in Tech, the Popular Science Tech team explains everything and tells you how all of these stories affect your daily life. New episodes post every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. We'll talk to you then. That was uh, such a beautiful Last Week in Tech ad, and it's so weird that Stan is just here. Stan is here and there. You can listen to Stan everywhere.
1: Yeah, I'm selling myself just wonderfully
0: Yes yeah. this podcast <laughs> yeah. here. I think you are.
1: I'm doing you it. came
0: on to talk about human skin preservation, and I mean, I think you fit right in.
1: Considerably less human skin talk I on think- Last Week in Tech.
0: <laughs> well, that's their loss, isn't it? Yes. All right, we're going to go to Anna now to talk about some penises. Tell us about the penises, Anna. I will tell you about the penises. Our penis correspondent.
2: I've been dying for like 14 years I've been working and finally I can talk about <laughs> penises in the workplace.
0: <laughs> That's like how I tell when I, when people are like, is it amazing to work at Popular Science? I'm like, yeah, I write, I write about animal penises sometimes <laughs> and I know lots of weird animal sex facts and I get paid to do that. Someone pays me to learn about animal penises. Not all the time, but sometimes. It's great.
2: I discovered my weird thing this week while I was working on a story um, about animals who self-amputate body parts to escape danger. So I was in the midst of interviewing the scientist who uh, specializes in this field of work and he mentioned that animals also self-amputate for reasons other than escape. The scientist casually mentions the phrase copulatory plug. Mm. And then keeps like talking. And I was like, hold the phone here, Zach. What is a copulatory plug? And he proceeds to tell me this horror story that I'm about to share with you.
0: We should mention that you can read more about this on popside.com
1: because Anna wrote a lovely story about yes, it. Yes,
2: you can. You can read it. It's not penis exclusive, but there's lots of other
1: interesting facts. About I'm it. biting down hard on a leather strap <laughs> I'm getting ready for
2: this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's real gross. There are some species of spiders. Like the golden silk orb weaver, these are the same spiders that eat birds and snakes. Like they're nasty. They are. They have beautiful coloring, but they're terrifying. Um, <laughs> so while these uh, spiders are making love, the male spiders will amputate their copulatory organs in order to plug up a female.
0: Oh God, that phrasing. Can, was can I awful. ask how? I how the We're getting works. there. Oh, Great okay. question, Stan.
2: So we're going to take a step back and talk about how spiders have sex. Male spiders secrete sperm out of their abdomen. So they don't actually have a penis. So they just have a tummy full of sperm cooking away. Wow. <laughs> so they secrete sperm <laughs> out of their stomachs.
1: Very awkward on the subway. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> they secrete it like just like. Out of their, they have an exoskeleton. Does it come out of, how I, does it come out?
2: That's a good question. There must be like a little hole or something. Know. Sperm so, hole, got it. Well, maybe because I don't know, like, maybe it has to with how they create their webs because they secrete the sperm onto their webs. But, what? Yeah. Yeah. So I have that's a. That's like a very a
1: specific Craigslist ad I saw one time.
2: <laughs> what? <laughs> Is this why they got rid of the personal <laughs> oh, section? Oh, no. <laughs>
0: They secrete the sperm
2: onto the web. Then they use their pedipalps. So a pedipalp, I have a picture. Sarah, explain what a pedipalp is. It's those black things.
0: I'm going to be honest. This looks like uh, a picture, a spider. Very close. And then <laughs> if you sort of gave it like black pom-poms. Yeah. But like with some stragglers, like some big old hairs in addition to the pom-poms. Um it's like the that's back of I'm Joe Pesci's at.
1: head. That's what I imagine that
0: looks like. <laughs> you know what? That's not at all a bad comparison. If you imagine two two of the back of Joe Pesci's head, but mounted on a tiny spider arms, that's what that looks like.
2: So, yeah, these are like organs on other like arachnids and insects. It's kind of like where the pinchers are, like their extra legs Sort of. Like, kind of under their jaw. Like, female spiders use this to help hold on to, like, struggling prey. Um, Are these, like, their hands? Kind of. Like, they already have eight arms. These are, like, little extra... um, The males use them for reproductive purposes, which I'm going to explain. But I think the females just use them to, like, maybe hold on. Is this a female
0: spider or a male spider?
2: You know what? I don't know. We're going to have to flip it upside down and check, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> unfortunately. All right. So the
0: pedipalps.
2: Okay. So there's semen all over the spider web, and then the men take their pedipalps and just do a little dunk, get them all coated in semen.
0: <laughs> oh, no.
2: <laughs> so they pick up the sperm, and then they put their pedipalps into a female's epigenum, which I thought was pronounced <laughs> Like. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Not correct. Um. So he puts those in the uh, spider's equivalent of a vagina, and then he just snaps them off. Some of them, though, some of them, their pedipalps don't break off, and they use, uh, like, once the second pedi, pedi? I don't know what the singular version of it, but once they're both in, sometimes the spider spontaneously dies, so its entire body is used as a pluck. (laughs) I... I have no words. And this is Do so that the words? other
1: spiders can't come along and like impregnate the female?
2: Yes, that's that's a reason. Keep sperm in, keep other males out. And this is a bit of a side note because it's not a penis, but spiders' penises aren't the only body parts. They'll give up during um, lovemaking. Um, some scientists studied spiders that will actually self-amputate a leg and present it to the female as a nuptial gift. In one study, a male dwarf spider even jazzed it up a little bit, and he <laughs> he amputated his leg and tied it to a dead fly with a little bit of silk and gave it to
1: the female. No, stop.
2: <laughs> and she what? Ate it.
1: Are there non-penis ones that like? Wh- <laughs> Wait, <laughs> are there what non-penis mean? animals that break other stuff off? Like, yeah, give me give me a palate cleanser. Like, give me a what's that crab? <laughs>
0: Oh, that crab that broke off, its, that, that video where yeah, it broke like off. Yeah, that's one of my favorite gifts. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: why did he yeah. do that?
0: Well, you have to read Anna's article. Stan. Yeah, I just. We're not going to give it all away.
2: Uh, yeah, I wrote an article, but it's too. Most of
0: it's not penises. Most of it's like arms and legs. And that one about the scorpion was wild. Oh,
2: this one's like a. Should I say it or no? It was great. Let's say it. Let's talk it's about it. A it's a, got this po- one's it's got a little sad. This is the only time I will feel sorry for a scorpion because I've been stung by one when I was trying to help it. So I'm. Do not like scorpion spiders. Get away from me. Anyway, so there's like a rare species of scorpion in South America who will self-amputate their tail if they're trying to escape a predator, if they're in danger. But the thing with scorpions is their anuses are in their tails. So if their tail falls off, they can never poop again.
0: <laughs> and they die from the buildup of the poop.
1: Really? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it would just sort of flop off like and just (laughs) flop out.
2: The wound heals so quickly, like these animals that autotomize, which is the scientific term for self-amputation, the injury heals super quick. So it heals up and there was like a super close-up picture of a a scorpion abdomen and it was like full of white goop and it was just getting, it was just swelling and swelling and I assume like they would crack or I don't know what happens, but they die. There's a section in a Chuck
0: Palahniuk book that's a lot like this
1: that I can't recommend. I got to say, I like the scorpion one a lot because it's the most spiteful thing I've ever heard of. I
0: will. Where it's
1: like, (laughs) the predator is like, I got you. I'm going to eat now. We're going to, I'm going to fulfill my evolutionary like, Mandate, and I'm gonna eat and survive. And the scorpion's like, "No, here's my poison thing," and then runs away and dies somewhere else out of spite.
0: Full of poop. Yeah, full of. Like, this is killing
1: me, but you don't get to have lunch, so I win. Well,
2: the tail <laughs> keeps moving and like tries to sting after it's off. It will keep moving, yes. so it might even it's end truly up like getting a- revenge. That yeah. Is-
1: that is a very s- sassy scorpion. Don't, don't like eat
2: it. scorpions. It's just not a good idea. Enjoy
1: them. your poison stings <laughs> and then go over here and explode to death.
2: God. Sorry, you're it takes hungry. Like, it takes up to eight months for them to die, too, because oh. they can still reproduce. So they can like what? have sex and then just for up to eight months are just slowly building up with excrement.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. What a way to go. Wow. Imagine. <laughs> that honestly doesn't even sound like the most violent animal sex, though. Do you guys know anything about duck reproduction? No. Um, all, pretty much all of duck sex is, like, violent, violent. We, we would call it rape, if probably. Evolutionarily, in order to sort of be able, like, be more in control of which male mates with them, the female ducks have evolved these, like, very complicated vaginas so they have like little like dead ends and like (laughs) loops and spirals and all to like make it harder for a male to mate with them and like actually or to make it harder to actually impregnate them and in response the males have evolved penises to go around like loops and spirals and stuff like that and so duck penises are like kind of basically like helical They're little spirals, and they, like, explode out. Like, they expand. I can't even describe it to you. If you go on YouTube and you search for probably just duck penis, it will come up, and it is this wild video against a black background of just a slow-motion duck penis expanding, and it is wild. That's disgusting.
2: But I really want to watch it. At you
0: should the same watch it. Time.
1: So who the the penises oh, win? To,
0: yeah, who wins? What's the weirdest thing you learned? Is it the penises, Dan?
1: I learned so many weird penis facts that I can't. I can't even.
0: So the penises have it. Congratulations,
2: Anna. Oh, thank you. You win. I knew my creepy internet research had to
0: count for something.
1: Yes. While you were in here, I saw the IT guys carrying your computer away <laughs> in a hazmat bag. <laughs>
0: it's confiscated now. All right. Well, thank you both for being here on this very weird episode of Weirdest Thing. Ah, thanks for having us. It was lovely. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening now. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. And if you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest_thing. underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.